Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will examine Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. I have chosen to entitle this section, Rebellion Does Not Lead to Rest. Our context is this. In the first 11 verses of Hebrews chapter 3, we saw how Jesus was a superior high priest to Moses, and we saw how the believers in Christ could enter into God's rest, even as the Israelites did not enter into God's rest when they left Egypt in the Exodus. So we start in verse 12, chapter 3. Watch out, brothers, so that, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. Now, this is an obvious exhortation, but notice that Paul uses the word brothers to address the people he's a he's talking to, he takes care to soften his heart, exhortations, evil, unbelieving heart, and so forth, because his brothers were getting ready to do something very serious. They were getting ready to apostatize from the Christian faith, and so it's a serious situation, so the rhetoric is a little bit harsher, but he still calls them brothers. He's appealing to them as brothers. Now, he refers to evil, unbelieving hearts that depart from the living God, a, an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. Now, that doesn't mean losing one's salvation, as Gill points out. Gill says that one can lose fellowship with the Lord a long time before one loses his salvation. And that's true. People think that, oh, well, I'm saved, and I'm in the elect, and I, I'm not going to fall away from the elect, so I can do whatever the heck I want to. They need to try that sometime and see how fun their life gets. God is perfectly capable of chastising his children, and the chastising can be pretty awful if the sin is pretty awful. So that doesn't mean losing one's salvation. Again, all through the book of Hebrews, since the whole theme is to keep the Hebrews from apostatizing, it's not to keep them from losing their salvation. It's to keep them from walking back into Judaism. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Encourage, that's from the Greek word parakaleo. It means to urge, to encourage, to comfort, to entreat. I'm begging you. So, for example, if somebody else is sinning, we need to encourage that person. We need to comfort them. We need to entreat them. We need to beg them to fly right. Encourage each other. Now, it should not be forgotten that younger brothers and sisters can encourage older ones too. Each other means everybody. A lot of times we think it's only older people that can encourage younger people to fly right. But it can go, it can, we need to remember it can go the other way too. What's that old joke? It says that if you see a pile of lumber in the backyard, the young people want to build a rocket launcher to launch to the moon. And the old people want to carry off the garbage and clean up, clean up the place and get rid of that wood, take it to the dump. Need a little balance there. Encourage each other daily. Now, to encourage somebody daily, that means you have to have close contact with one another. Adam Clark says, this supposes a state of close church fellowship without which they could not have had access to each other. Encourage each other daily. Be in each other's lives. Don't just go to church on Sunday or Wednesday night, listen to a sermon and go home. Encourage one another. While it is still called today, in other words, don't wait till tomorrow to encourage somebody. Do it today. Now, it could be because of the Hebrew culture that's being used here, that today could refer to the time when God gives the opportunities for salvation, as Steve Ackerson says. In other words, now that we have the Messianic age here, we've got the time for salvation, but that might close one day. John Gill speculates as to when that, that might be. 
while the gospel dispensation dispensation continues, well, that will be all the way to the end of time, so that's not much of a threat. I would think that would cause us to encourage each other daily. Could be today is why your life is still here. Before you die, encourage each other why it's still today, why your life is still here. I don't know. I think that's all nice speculation, but I think what it's talking about is do it today. Do it now. So that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Sin makes one rationalize sinful behavior, and thus it deceives you. Here's a good quote from Steve Ackerson. Living in sin seems to have the same effect on one's reasoning ability as taking drugs. Sin makes you rationalize ungodly behavior. Living in sin makes you behave in an ugly manner toward others. Sin can deceive you in that you begin to drift away from Christ and neglect the things of the Lord. You grow cold. Have you ever noticed that on AA meetings, I've never been an alcoholic, but I've watched enough movies about alcoholics and watched the movies. One of the first things they get the alcoholic to do is to confess that it's his fault, not everybody else's fault. It's his fault that he's an alcoholic. Well, that's the same thing with sin. You need every Christian to say, well, the sin is my fault. I take responsibility for it. I need to be forgiven for it. I can't forgive. I can't get forgiveness for it except through Christ, but I do need to acknowledge that it's my sin. It's not somebody else that did something to me. Now, the particular sin that the author is probably thinking about is apostasy. The sin that deceives is, well, let's go back. Let's go back to that Jewish religion that murdered Jesus and the prophets. We go to verse 14 of Hebrews 3. For we have become companions of the Messiah, if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. Before means because it's enforcing the warning in verse 13 to not be deceived by sin that we just talked about. Do not be deceived by sin. Why? Because we have become companions of the Messiah. You become companions of Jesus, you won't be deceived by sin. That word companions is translated in different ways. The Greek is metakoi. Translated by the NIV as sharers of the Messiah or sharers with the Messiah. KGV says partakers of the Messiah. I don't think those translations are as good as the Holman Christian Study Bible. We have become companions of the Messiah. One thing about the word companions, it doesn't, doesn't really express union with Christ as well as it might. John Gill says the, the metakoi is expresses, express, expressive of, quote, union with Christ. A further quote from Gill, this is a conjugal union. There is communion of names, of persons, of goods, of honor and dignity, and of everlasting glory. Now, here we have another if here, for we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. Now, reading this as a young man, I remember thinking, oh, this sounds like you can lose your salvation. It does not mean that at all. First of all, the if is one of those Greek constructions, third class conditional. If you have aeon or a form of aeon plus a subjunctive in the if clause, that means you have most of the time a future most likely or a future likely probable, as Daniel Wallace calls it, the Greek expert. That means it's likely going to happen, not absolutely certain, but likely. So when we see this, if we hold firmly until the end, that's most likely going to happen. The reality we had at the start, that's most likely going to happen, that that reality that the Christians had at the start was going to be held firmly until the end, but not absolutely. Well, you can say then, well, okay, but then that shows out that it's most likely that everybody will keep their salvation, but a small minority might lose their salvation, which, of course, on other grounds is not possible. So how do you handle that? Well, here's what it means. If we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start, that proves that we have become companions of the Messiah. If you don't hold firmly until the end the reality that you had at the start, 
Well, that means you never were a companion of the Messiah. So the holding fast is proof to you that you are companions of the Messiah. A much more positive way of looking at that. So let me summarize. It is likely that most will hold firmly to the end, and those who don't weren't companions of the Messiah to begin with, the ones who don't hold fast. Hold firmly until the end. The end of what? Well, the end of life, it could be. The end of the world of the second coming, Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest. problem with that is that that didn't apply to any of the Hebrews. Hold fast till the end of the world. And, of course, since this is a Jewish writer writing right before 8070, it could be the end of the Jewish world or the Jewish age. They need to hold firmly until the end of that because that would end the persecution that's causing the Jews so much, the Christian Jews in Israel so much trouble and persecution. We've got, we've got to hold firmly to get through that persecution to the end of this Jewish apostate nation that's persecuting us, and that's coming soon. Now, you say, well, how did they know? They're writing in the mid-60s. How did they know it was going to come in 8070? Because Jesus said on the Olivet Discourse, not one stone's going to be left on top of another of that beautiful temple until this this generation will not pass away until all those stones are taken down. So that means within one generation of Jesus' death, which is about 8030, it's now 35, 36, 37 years later that the author of the book of Hebrews is writing. That means one generation is getting close to happen. That means the temple is going to get torn down pretty soon. And that's going to, all we got to do is hold firmly until whatever happens to cause that happens. That really does take a lot of faith because that temple was a, and that state that they were fighting against that was persecuting them looked like they were totally entrenched but god is sovereign he's bigger than mighty political states the author says if we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start the kgv and the niv translate that as the confidence we had at the start and gill says by confidence we mean is meant faith if we hold to the faith of the confidence we had at the start i don't know why reality i don't think that's Either way, I guess, confidence or reality we had at the start, at the beginning when we accepted Christ. Verse 15, Hebrews 3, As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now this today is repeated three times in this chapter of Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice. Hebrews 3, 13, But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hard by sin's deception. That's the verse we just read. And Hebrews 3, 15, this verse here that we're on now. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. The reason this repeated three times is to show the urgency of the exhortation. Do it now. The author wanted the Hebrew Christians to get right with God right now and forget this apostasy business. Of course, that's easy to make an application if you're a preacher or a Bible teacher. It's too often people put off spiritual commitment, especially young people, because they got plenty of time, they think. Well, I'll do it after school. I'll do it after I get a job. I'll do it after I get married. And that leads to nothing but sad, sad, sad results. The author of Hebrews in verse 15 says, It is said, well, that means it's scripture somewhere. And he's, where he's quoting from is Psalm 95, 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, and then dot, 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 he goes on. Hebrews 3:16. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it really all who came out of Egypt under Moses? Now, there's a for there. That means a because there. There's a causal effect that the author is trying to point out. He's trying to show what was the purpose of mentioning the Israelites hearing and rebelling. For who heard and rebelled? To call attention to the contemporary Hebrews who were hearing and rebelling. In other words, he's referring to the people who heard Moses' call and the word of God in the times of the Exodus. They heard. They left Egypt. They got saved, in other words, and then they wandered around in, in the wilderness before they walked into the promised land. They rebelled, and guess what you 
modern day Hebrews in eighty sixties in the eighty sixties are doing. You hear you've heard the word of God. You've heard from Christ and Jesus and His apostles. You've heard the Messiah, and now you're rebelling. So guess what? You're gonna wander around and be lost and not enter into the promised land, the salvation, the kingdom of God. You're gonna not do that, just like your ancestors. And that's what he's getting at. Now he's gonna ask a series of questions in the remaining verses of this chapter. And the purpose of those questions is to show that there were serious consequences for unbelief. So we'll see that as we go through. Now the first question, wasn't it really all who came out of Egypt under Moses? And the implication is they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. He doesn't say that, but that's what he means. All who came out of Egypt under Moses who heard and rebelled? Well, actually, all there doesn't mean all without exception. Each and every Israelite without exception. Because we need to consider those who did not rebel and hardened get their hearts hardened. Moses didn't. Joshua didn't. Caleb didn't. Clark says very likely the priest did not. The whole, Clark also says the whole tribe of Levi probably did not hear and rebel. Eliezer, the son of Aaron, Clark says, did not rebel, quoting a couple of verses in the, in the Old Testament. Also, those under 20 didn't rebel. We read in Numbers 14, 29, your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. So if you were under 20, when that census was taken in the wilderness, you're safe. You're going to make it in. You're not going to fall. So the all there means a whole bunch of, but it doesn't mean everyone without exception. That happens a lot when you see that word all. You have, it either means all without exception, it means all groups without distinction, or it means a whole bunch of, but not necessarily 100% of. Now, interestingly enough, the King James translates this. Wasn't, really, wasn't it really some who came out of Egypt? Well, that's a lousy translation, as Gill and Clark point out, because it messes up the author's argument, trying to talk about a lot of people came out of Egypt, and they rebelled. And look what happened to them. They didn't get into the promised land, just like you Hebrew Christians are going to do if you keep it up. To give the early Israelites as an example is perfect. It's a perfect way to appeal to the Hebrew Christians. They were Jews as well as Christians. So Jewish examples would mean a lot to them. Verse 17 of Hebrews 3. And here's the second question. And who was he provoked with for 40 years? Of course, it was the Jews, your ancestors. Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Oh, your ancestors sinned and died in the wilderness? Again, the, the application is very clear. The author's trying to point out to the 8060 Jews, you want to die? You want to die in Jerusalem? You want to die in the wilderness just like your ancestors did? You want to sin like they did? The wages of sin is death, my friends. Now, how was God provoked? Where can we see that in the Old Testament? Psalm 95:10. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. This is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. Hebrews 3.10, just seven verses previous in the previous audio, it says this, For forty years, therefore I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So it's very clear God was not happy with his chosen race. One more example of how his election, his choosing, it ain't based on our good works. The Israelites were chosen as a chosen nation, and my gosh, did they sin constantly. I remember when I was read the Old Testament as a young man, I guess I was a teenager, didn't know a thing about it, still don't know that much about it, unfortunately, but just reading it virginly, I remember being struck. I said, my gosh, all these kings, every one of them's a reprobate. They're constantly rebelling against God. These people were terrible. 
I'll never forget that. I was just so shocked. I thought they, would be, they were going to be good guys. It's not the way it was. Now notice that in Hebrews 3.17, as well as Hebrews 3.10, the number 40 years is mentioned. Let me start with 3.9. Your fathers tested me, i.e. in the wilderness. They tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Okay, they saw his works for 40 years in the wilderness. And Psalm 95.10 says, for 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. And Hebrews 3.17 says, and who was he provoked with for 40 years? Why the mention of 40? Well, the author of Hebrews probably mentioned that number because it was the same period of time which elapsed before the judgment that was coming. They sinned for 40 years and their bodies fell in the in the wilderness. Now the analogy to the Hebrew Christians would be clear. They had been sinning for about 40 years since Jesus was erected in AD 30, so they should expect judgment soon, about AD 70, which actually happened when the Romans destroyed Israel. Now here's a good quote from Adam Clark concerning this. I believe it was Surin Husius. Now I don't know who that guy is. He's got a great name. Clark says this, I believe it was Surin Husius who first observed that the apostle, and using the term 40 years, elegantly alludes to the space of time which had elapsed since the ascension of our Lord till the time in which this epistle was written, which was about 40 years. But this does not exactly agree with what appears to be the exact date of this epistle. In other words, it's in the 60s, so it's, not, it's only 30, some, 30 plus years. However, God had now been a long time provoked by that race rejecting the manifested Messiah as he was by the conduct of their forefathers in the wilderness. And as that provocation was punished by a very signal judgment, so they might expect this to be punished also. The analogy was perfect in the crimes, and it might reasonably be expected to be so in the punishment. And was not the destruction of Jerusalem a proof of the heinous nature of their crimes and of the justice of God's outpoured wrath? So basically, Clark says in more elegant language what I just said, the 40 years was to make an analogy between the Exodus Jews and the 8060 Jews if you uh, sin brings about dying in the wilderness. Of course, the Hebrew Christians had a chance to stop it by their repentance. They fell in the wilderness. That means they, before they made it to the rest of the promised land, they fell. No, and that means they died. Numbers 14:29. your corpses will fall in this wilderness. It doesn't just mean stumbling trip, means it means dying. Hebrews 3, 18 through 19, we'll finish up this audio. And who did he swear to that, this is the third question he's asking the Hebrew questions, and who did he swear to that they would not enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? Once again, he's referring back to the Exodus Jews to make an example, a type, if you will, a model to the 8060 Jews, the Christian Jews. And did he swear to those that they would not enter his rest, if not those and who, and who did he swear to, to whom did he swear, that they would not enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Well, first of all, the swearing. God swore. There's nothing wrong with swearing as long as you do it properly. Otherwise, God would be sinning. He swore by himself. because There's nobody higher than him who can, he can swear to. Psalm 95, 11, And so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. And that's the psalm that the author of Hebrews is quoting here in verse 18. The rest, of course, is a, a, a type, a symbol of the promised land, as Steve Ackerson says. Well, it was the promised land, I should say, not a type of. But the promised land was a type of salvation in Christ, or I, I put it the kingdom of God, where we are saved in, in Christ's kingdom either way. And physically, they didn't enter into the promised land. And the symbol there is, hey, you want to not believe in God? You ain't going to enter into heaven. So you got to believe. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. Despite all the signs and wonders that were done for the Israelites, they still disbelieved and rebelled. I tell you, the easiest thing in the world to do is rebel against God. Having gone through my intellectual doubt period, 
lasted all the way through junior high, high school, finally ended when I was in college at the age of 18. It's like being, it's like drug addiction. It's terrible. It's awful because you're alienated from God that you feel like you're supposed to believe in, but you can't. It's just a terrible thing. Well, the Israelites, they, it didn't matter how many signs were done for them. They didn't believe. Deuteronomy 126, but you were not willing to go up, God says to the Israelites, rebelling against the command of the Lord your God. Rebelling against the command of the Lord your God, the whole human race is doing that, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Not being able to enter the promised land is because of unbelief, which is a serious, serious sin. That which is not of faith is sin, as the scripture says somewhere else. Adam Clark says, unbelief has generally been considered the most damning of all sins. Another quote from Clark, this whole chapter, as the epistle in general, reads a most awful lesson against backsliders triflers and loiters in the way of salvation. Every believer in Christ is in danger of apostasy, while any remains of the evil heart of unbelief are found in him. In other words, don't apostatize. And with those cheery words, we have now finished Hebrews chapter 3. In our next audio in chapter 4, we'll talk about Jesus, the great high priest, and we'll talk about entering into that rest that is promised to the believer. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 